Uh, we'll be in First Samuel chapter ten, um, beginning in verse seventeen. We we um, spent a little time in chapter ten last week, and we'll finish that and move on um, this morning. So, just a little bit of recap um, as you're turning or typing um, to get to First Samuel ten. Um, remember, Samuel is a is a theological history, right? It is telling the story of the people of Israel um, in in roughly the year a thousand BC. Um, it, it covers a couple generations in that in that area, um, and it's it is talking about moving from the period of the judges into a monarchy where Israel will be ruled as a nation with one king, um, and that that has is going to be. Uh, contentious because the people have demanded it in their demanding of a king. They are rejecting God's kingship over them, um, although he is not rejecting them as a people. And so Samuel, the prophet, um, is, is started the process of, of selecting a king. And we saw that last week um, where Saul has learned that privately. It's not yet a public uh, declaration. Um, and if you remember, uh, Saul was a bad shepherd, right? That's kind of where we meet him. Um, which is a foreshadowing of the fact that he's not going to be a good king. Um, and as chapter 10 left off, he has arrived back at home um, without the donkeys, although the donkeys had already been found, knowing that he is going to be made the king of Israel. And his uncle asked him, hey, so what's going on? And he said, we met Samuel. He told us the donkeys were home. And he kind of just leaves out the whole, the whole king part. And so let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 10 and, and continue our story. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mezpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. We're going to stop there for, for a moment. So, well, so here's kind of the, the situation. Um, Saul has been confirmed privately that he's going to be the king. And now what we're going to see here is, is kind of just further public confirmation. If, if Mezpo, the, the location where this is taking place, seems familiar, back in chapter 7 when, when Ricky preached that for us, um, Mezpo was where Samuel really interceded on behalf of the gathered nation before the Lord, right? Where they repented 
um, of, of having followed after false gods and false idols. It's where he led them into a battle against the Philistines and won. And it was just outside of Mespa where um, he erected right the Ebenezer, right? That thus far the Lord has helped us, right? And so he's kind of taken them back to this place where God has already um, intervened, where he has interceded on behalf of them. And we have this interesting phrase that, that he was, they were finding out who was going to be king by the casting of lots, okay? Basically, we can imagine this somewhat of like, of, of dice, right? It's, it's a game of seeming chance, right? Samuel is saying, listen, I'm not the one selecting it. God's doing it, and we're going to show that, right, through, through God's direction of the lots. And so we've seen in the Old Testament, <coughs> excuse me, um, several in Joshua chapter 18, um, they actually divide out land amongst the tribes by casting of lots, right? Trying to be fair. Um, we see Achan and his sin, right, is found out because they weren't confessing um, by the casting of lots to show who the guilty party was. In Leviticus 16, um, that the atonement um, animals that would be sacrificed were selected by casting lots of those that had been had been brought before. And so that this was something um, that we see uh, somewhat often. And then this is what Proverbs tells us about the casting of lots. This is Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Right? That there was this just belief that as we are doing this, that the Lord is guiding and directing, is going to bring forth the one who will be our king. And so ultimately, um, the tribe of Benjamin is, is pulled forth, and then uh, specifically Saul's family, and then from that, Saul's father, and then specifically Saul. Um, as king. In the end, we see that Samuel has told the people in verse 25 the rights and duties of the kingship. This is in um, from Deuteronomy chapter 17. In the promise of a king, we hear this. This is verses 18 and 19 of Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, meaning the law that God has laid out for the people, Approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so there was this expectation that the king would not just do whatever he wanted, but that he would be ruled by the law that God has already given his people by covenant. And so that he was to have a copy, right, and to, and to know it so that he would know the Lord. And so Samuel has made sure this is, is, is taking place, has written it, has given it to Saul, right? The purpose being to keep his heart soft before the Lord, not going off on his own way. And so... Um, we're going to come back to this interesting scene of, of Saul hanging, hiding behind the baggage. Um, but before that, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 11. So they, they've all headed back to home. Saul's been affirmed as king. Now verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, 
I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gabi of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they're weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said to the messengers who had come, This shall you say to the men of Gabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. All right, so as we mentioned in the intro, right, we have a a theological history here, right? A history of the people is being told, but it's being told specifically so that we would see the heart of God, the things that are going on. And at the end of chapter 10, we see this this phrase that there were some men of valor who went up with Saul, like, right, they're excited, they're, they're glad to be serving him. And there were some other men who were murmuring and saying, yeah, this ain't the guy. And they were not gonna offer tribute um, and, and so we see this kind of strange phrase, right? That they're, that they're opposing him and, and Saul just kind of lets it lie, right? That he's like, he, he keeps his peace. And this, this story in chapter 11 kind of ends with, hey, who were those dudes again? We need to talk to them. Those two stories, right, are bracketing this battle that's happening. Because what's occurring in chapter 11 is, is Saul now really being confirmed as king over the country, right? Even though he has privately been affirmed, although he has publicly been, been chosen, right? There are still those who weren't sure that this is the man. And now in victory, he is affirming and, and it has been confirmed as king. He is victorious and now all the people are going to follow, are willing to follow, so, who are the Ammonites? All right, the Ammonites are really kind of distant relatives um, of Israel. Um, we see them first mentioned in Genesis 19, verse 38. Lot's youngest daughter um, gives birth to a son, and from that son, the Ammonite peoples will come. And so, if you read the story of Israel having left Exodus to the promised land, the Ammonites are a people that you'll see often. Um, their story of, of really why there's 
struggle between them is in Judges 11, if you want to read that story. Um, But basically, they did not offer help to Israel as they were going through the wilderness. I'm going to read, this is Deuteronomy 23. Verse 3. We'll see a shorter verse and then, then Judges 11. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Verse 4. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Peorth of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God will not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Right? And so really we see enmity has been with them now since this moment. And so there's, there's been generational fighting. They, they, share, uh, they share borders. And so Nahash has come in into a um, Jabesh of Gilead, this city, and he's basically, he's overrun it. And he's, there's been battles, and he has run the men who have survived into this city, and he's basically holding it under siege. Um, history would say potentially 7,000 men had kind of sought, had, had sought refuge there. And they're going, okay, what do we need to do? We'll make a treaty with you, because at this point, remember, the 12 tribes are somewhat um, on their own. Really, Saul has not unified them yet. And so individual tribes and individual cities had the right to make a treaty because they're not making it on behalf of all of Israel. And Nabish is like, hey, here's what I want. Um, I'll, I'll take your treaty, and you're going to serve me, and you're going to pay me taxes, and I'm also going to take your eye. And I'm going to do it to humiliate you. I'm going to do it because you're mine, and everyone's going to know it. And they're going to hear about it through all of Israel, and there will be humiliation out of all of Israel, right? He's mocking them. Why take an eye, right? Because they can still farm, right? If they can still farm, they can still pay taxes. They can still pay tribute. But it makes it a lot more difficult to fight a battle with one eye, right? It's harder to shoot a bow. It's harder to fight when, you, when you're, your eye's gone. And so he is basically making sure they're not going to come back to fight him again, but they'll still be able to work to pay him what he wants. Um. Listen, why does he give them seven days, right? Whether it was some sort of um, respect, whether it was some sort of just confidence, brashness, that he thought, I think he was ready to fight all of Israel, basically. He's like, listen, if help comes, I'll take them too, and I'll take their eye. And so the, the messengers send out begging for help, asking for help. And we see... Saul respond with like vengeance, right? That the Spirit of God fell upon him. If, if, if you're not aware, in the Old Testament, before the time of Jesus, what we see is the Holy Spirit would come and go. It very rarely sat and, and, and remained on a person. It, it came and went. It's why the, when Jesus says, it's better for me to leave so that the Comforter will come, why that is such big, important, and good news, that, that God would reside with us permanently not coming and going but staying and so he rallies right and in the spirit of god comes upon him he calls him out he knows that his name is not yet sufficient so he says listen samuel and i we're saying come with us or we're going to kill your oxen too right i mean it's like you're, you're we're going to rally together this is the first opportunity and they show up and somewhere between 2 and 6 a.m in the morning right they attack 
And the, and the men of Jabesh Gilead, right, they had said, listen, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you so that you may do whatever seems good to you. This phrase here is basically tomorrow we're going to come out like we told you we would. But it could also be, hey, we're, we're coming out to meet you in battle. They left it. It was a shrewd statement that probably left the Ammonites a little bit on their heels. And they were routed, right? That, that Saul comes in and thoroughly defeats them so that there are no two of them still left running, that they're all on their own, headed back to their city, ashamed and defeat, defeated. And we see Saul being celebrated, rejoiced in. And so, a couple thoughts here. First of all, let's look at Israel. Israel has an opportunity when Samuel is presenting the the public affirmation of a king. They have one more chance to repent. Look back in chapter 10 and verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mezpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And he begins to remind them of their history. I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Right? Like there's, there's an opportunity for them to say, yeah, we, we just want God. Right? We want to repent. God is our king. Right? They're being reminded one more time. And they don't want it. They want a king. They want to look like the nations. They want someone who will go out to battle for them. And then immediately, there's this awkward scene, right? Where Saul is selected as king, and they're like, where is he? And so the people start looking for him. Like, where's our king? Who is it? And they can't find him. And look at what they do in verse 22. So they, in, verse, at the end of verse 21, they sought him and he could not be found. So verse 22, they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? They basically said, God, we don't want you as king. We're rejecting you. Uh, God, we need your help. We can't find our king. Right? Like, it's just, it, there's like some just awkward humor in this of like, they, they don't even realize how much they need him. And so God says he's hiding in the baggage. I don't, I don't know if this is the phrase, like, man, you got baggage comes from. But if not, it should be, right? Like, this is just a great story that, like, Saul is hiding amongst the baggage when they find him. And so they bring him out, right? I'm guessing he's not, like, beating his chest at this point. There's probably some humility, some fear, some trepidation that he is not... And yet he stands ahead above everyone, and so everyone sees him. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And listen, the people shouted, Long live the king. Just this absurd scene where they're like, We can't find him. He's hiding amongst the baggage. God, we reject you. Long live our king whom God has given us. The most similar scene we've seen in Samuel to this is when the ark came out in battle. And a mighty roar goes up, and then they get routed and defeated because they tried to weaponize God. They have shouted for the ark of God, which is a representation of him, and they have shouted for a king who is a representation of him. Whom have they not shouted for? And it's God. They have shouted for the things that God gives, but not him. Right? It's revealing the heart and the character of a nation right now. And so it leads us to Saul. Man, Saul is a complicated dude. 
All right? He's complex. And I think if we're not careful, because we know in the end he's not a good king, we know that here that God has said, I'm actually going to punish the nation of Israel through the selection of a king, that we're like, hey, everything Saul does is just bad. But that's not the case, right? And, and, and if we're not careful, right, we just we read everything through a lens of, this is a good character in the Bible, so look at all the good, and we ignore the bad. Or this character's bad in the Bible, and so look at all the bad, and we ignore the good. And yet we know that this is not what life looks like, right? People are not, outside of Jesus, all good. And even those who are wicked are often not completely wicked. That there is both good and bad in individuals. That we are complicated, we are complex. There's a Middle Eastern ideal still to this day. That especially with political leaders, they, they cannot... Um, verify that a man can be both good and bad. And so you'll see them hold up someone like Saddam Hussein and said he was, he was a good man. Why was he a good man? Because he opposed America. Well, what about when he did this to his people? Or did they, and they're like, ah, I don't want to talk about that. He's a good man. And you say, well, what about you know, any president you want to name in America? Oh, they're a bad man. Well, what about the good that they've done? Well, but they've opposed us, right? Like, there's no ability to say... We liked that Saddam opposed America, but it was horrible that he did this, right? It's kind of an all or nothing type thing. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing in scripture, right? That we demonize people instead of looking at the complexity of life, which is our circumstance, right? Are we able to recognize that people have both things to be cheered and things to be right credited to them as, as evil or wicked often, right? Um, we can think about this as... Even this morning, right? Many of us have sinned this morning. And yet here we are lifting hands and songs to God, right? We can see this in our children who can say and do wicked and evil things. And in the next moment, pull up in your lap and love you and, and cuddle with you and tell you how much they like you. And you're like, right? Like we are complex and complicated. And yet we see in Saul some good things, Right? We see in Saul some bad things. That he is fearful. What did they say they wanted a king for? To fight their battles. And where is he hiding? In the baggage. Right? Like he's not like boldly walking through going, I will be victorious for you. He is fearful and hiding. Which is what? It's a lack of trust in God. Because he has been confirmed by Samuel, the national prophet. Right? Who has been told, God has told me you're him. By the way, it was then confirmed three times personally as he went home, right? And even that, the Spirit of God fell on him and he prophesied, becoming a different person, right? So that people were like, is this Saul? Saul's a prophet now? Like, what is going on? Like, that he had seen that God had confirmed him through the the giving of the Spirit in that moment and that God could transform him into something else. So even though he was fearful of the role, even though he was potentially humble in this, he is not trusting that God, right, is going to do God's part. And he's like, I'm not sufficient, I'm not enough, and so I'm going to hide. And he's not trusting that God has divinely confirmed him. And then it's confirmed publicly. He knew that his name was about to get called. And so he's like, maybe if I'm not there, they'll pick somebody else. And so he's hiding out. And so we know this, this bad, this, this sad in him. But what about what's good? The fact that he's humble, right? Like a lot of dudes are being told they're king and they're like, what took you so long? I am better than all of you. You should have made me king a long time ago. We wouldn't be in this mess. 
And yet we see humility in Saul, that he's not beating his chest. In verse 5 of chapter 11, he doesn't just immediately go about kingdom building. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field in his hometown behind the oxen. Right, that he's just kind of gone back to normal and is hard working. Look at verse uh, 27 of the end of chapter 10. But for some worthless fellows, they said, how can this man save us? They despised him and they brought him no present. But look at what he does. He held his peace. Man, he's not being quarrelsome here. To the point now we go to chapter 11, verse 13. Where are the men? Bring us the men that we may put them to death. That said, Saul shall, shall not reign over us. But look at what Saul says. Not a man shall be put to death this day. Right? We see him showing peace and then not showing vindication. Like these are positive attributes. These are justice. These are things we want in a king. And he goes even further in verse 13. Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. He's giving God the credit not taking it himself. And so I want us to be honest to look at him and say, listen, we know bad is coming. We know hard things are coming. We see some difficulty here. But Saul's also doing some things right. In, in church, does that not describe us? Right? That we have these fighting among us, right? That we have both good deeds and hard deeds. We have good and we have bad. And so we are complicated and complex. Church, we sin. And because we sin, right? Because all of humanity, apart from Jesus, has sinned against the Holy God, it is an affront to His holiness. And you've seen some of the the difficulty of how God feels about that in Samuel, that it's intense, right? It's rebellion. It's saying, God, I don't trust you. It's a lack of trust and it's rebellion. And ultimately, often what our sin is is saying, God, you don't belong on the throne. I belong on the throne of my life. And so I don't trust you. I trust me and I'm going to do my thing my way. And we see pride and we see sin. And it creates a barrier between us and God. And a barrier that that religions across the world recognize that we need to get to God and that we can't. And so then they try to build a system that says if you do these things, if you go through these rules, if you avoid these sins, if you do these good deeds, if you give enough, if you don't, you can get to God. And we, we know that God is holy enough and that we are rebellious enough that that barrier cannot be crossed by ourselves. We can't solve the problem. And so James will say in chapter 1, right, that when, when sin entices us, right, and we end up sinning, it leads to death. That our sin is an affront to God and what we deserve is death. In Genesis 3, that the sin of not trusting God, of not listening to Him, is met with a curse. They're kicked out of the garden and death, tragedy, suffering, brokenness enters all of creation. Listen to Colossians Three, five through six. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right? That our sin puts an issue with us and God. And so what he's going to do is he's going to punish a lack of holiness. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. And who was living in them? All of us. Outside of Jesus, every man, woman, child who's ever lived, and everyone who will ever come, will walk in sin against God. Our, our, our deeds here create an issue that needs solving. 
And so if we're not careful, then right, we do the, the Saul treatment. Oh, we're all bad. Like, what are we going to do? And we look up and we see people doing good things. And we see people who don't love Jesus doing good things. And we see nations who would say that they, they follow a different God doing good things. So what do, what do we do with that? Scripture teaches us this. That apart from Christ, our good deeds are filthy rags. Because what are those good deeds an attempt to do often to appease him? Right? It's an attempt to make things right with him. And it's kind of like, right, like um, a child bringing in a broken dandelion to mom. Going, hey, so you know that, that all those bad things I did? Does this make it better? Right? And you're like, I appreciate the effort. Um, and I do love you. But it doesn't really make it better. Right? It doesn't really make up for things. And that's on a, like a, a, a purely human level, let alone against the holiness of God. That when we are doing works, when we are doing good deeds, when we are doing religious things, when we're avoiding sins or engaging in good activities, for the point of appeasing God, of earning our salvation, they are filthy rags before Him. They are not sufficient. They will not do the job. We even hear in Ephesians 2, This description. For by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? The scripture is clear. It says, when salvation comes, it's not because of what you've done. It's also not because of what you've avoided doing. That you've avoided the big sins. God gives salvation Not on your merit, but on His. Because of His grace and His mercy, it is a gift to you so that you cannot boast in it. And so the one of us who lives the most holy outward living life is no more worthy of salvation than the one who has lived a pagan life running far from God. We don't contribute an iota to our salvation. We don't, it's not like, hey, well God did 99.999. You see that one, that one one thousandth I threw in? There is none. And any works you're doing attempting to appease Him for your salvation are filthy rags and not pleasing to Him. However, you're probably thinking, man, I'm thinking of all these scriptures and they say that do good works. We should do good works. And we should. But not for the means of salvation. We do good works. We walk in good works. We walk in a manner, a manner worthy of the calling that has been laid before us because Jesus has rescued us. Because he has saved us. Because when we were the enemies of the cross, he demonstrated his love for us by dying on your worst day to make you right with the Holy One. We then walk in good works that we have been saved by grace with no boasting, no grounds for that to make much of Jesus for the rest of our lives. We see this in Exodus. Right? He rescues the people of God out of Egypt He rescues them through the wilderness. He gets them to Mount Sinai. And then he gives them the law after they were rescued. Then he does it for us that he rescues us first. And then he calls us to walk in faithful obedience. If you go back to Ephesians. um, Often we read verses 8 and 9. And we miss verse 10. So we see in verse 9. It's not a result of works so that you may not boast. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, we have to get the order right. 
that we are to walk in good works. We are to have lives that shine before others, as Matthew 5 would say, right? So that they would glorify God, that they would be drawn to them. It was the, the goal and the role of the nation of Israel was to serve and to live in a way that would draw the nations to them where they would then see God. But when we are doing them to gain God's favor, they are worthless to us. They condemn us and they damn us. When we do them because Jesus has saved us, because he has rescued us, and we are now free to walk in them, they are glory to God. They are worship and they are obedience and they are pleasing to him. And he calls us then to walk in those good deeds so that others would see and glorify him, would trust him, and would know him. Church, you, we walk in good deeds because one day we want to hear Jesus look at us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? We want to walk through that, that fiery judgment holding a refined life of work that says, I did this for your glory. Look at all that I have to lay down in worship before you, not burned up because our works were shown for being for us and our pride and our reputation. Right? And so in Saul, we see complexity. We see good and we see bad. And then we hear the word works and we know that scripture says two really strong and hard things about them. One, that we should walk in them. And two, that if they're done for the wrong motivation, they're filthy rags. And here's the hard thing. We aren't very good at determining that for, in someone else. But I can see your good works. And it may be that you are looking to appease God. Or I can see your good works. And it may be that you are walking in the salvation that you've been called in. And I don't know your heart. And you don't know mine. Right? And so we want to make sure that we are walking humbly before the Lord. Trusting Him. So church, here's, here's where we're going to end. Do you trust this morning that he's, in, he's at work in you? That maybe this morning He's revealing to you all the religious things you've done your entire life were meant for you and to make Him happy, to appease Him. And would you hear this morning that's not how it works, that Jesus has done the work of appeasing God on your behalf. That He has taken the wrath of God so that you wouldn't have to. But if you know Jesus and if you're walking in good works, would you not hide in the baggage? He will transform you. He will do the work that he has called you to do. He will provide the spirit and he will provide the transformation and he will provide the grace. And so if there is a hard conversation you need to have, God will go before you. So do it boldly. Humbly, but boldly. Every Sunday when myself or Dan or Paul or Ricky or someone preaches... We come up and we preach, I I hope, boldly. But it's certainly not in our preparation. It's not boldness in that. It's not boldness in us or our character or our ability. It's in boldness that God has spoken. It's true. His Spirit is present and it's at work. And so I'm going to come before you as humbly as I can, saying, not at me. Look at Him. But I'm going to do it boldly because I trust He's faithful and He's at work. And so whether it's a hard conversation, right, whether it's preaching, whether it's, uh, it's difficulty in relationships, whether it's with a lost neighbor or a broken familial relationship, that we would go forward, not hiding in the baggage, but walking in the faithfulness of God, that he has called us to walk out the good deeds of our salvation, that the light would shine before, that others would see and know him and trust him. And that we would look at our good works and say, I'm just better than you, right? It's not what we do. So Jesus is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. That we too were lost, sinners, beggars, 
in need of hope and salvation, and Jesus met us in that. Whether our life looks sparkly clean or looks really gross and grimy, we were all in need of it. So that we don't boast, but we hold up the cross of Christ. And if you remember Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, listen to verse 7. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. We see him exalting right Saul right here in victory. He's also going to bring Saul low. Why? Because of verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. And let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And so you have a choice this morning. You can stand before God in your pride, in your arrogance, with your actions, and they will be weighed, and you will be found wanting. And you will spend eternity separated from him. Or, Jesus can do that for you. And you will stand before him covered in the blood of Jesus, with his perfect righteousness, and his holiness. And you will be exalted for all of eternity, not as God, but as one who trusted God, who trusted in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. So church, as we wrestle with these characters in the Old Testament, would we remember that they're people, that they're complex, and so are we, and that we need Jesus to work out in all the nooks and crannies and all the baggage of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. For your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to take um, scripture that could feel obscure and to speak. Father, would we this morning, would you give clarity to those of us in the room who right now are trusting our works to appease you? And that that's what makes us right with you. It's what makes you like us. It's what makes you answer our prayers. God, would we repent of that? Would we see it as the filthy rags that they are? And God, would you show us that you've done the work on our behalf. God, for those of us who know that you have rescued us and we are humbly grateful of that, God, would you give us eyes to see the works that you've called us to walk in, that we would do them boldly, trusting that you are going before us, that you're preparing the way, that you are sufficient and that we can trust you. God, and that we would do it humbly, trusting that you will exalt in due time. And Father, would we see eternal fruit spring forth from those conversations and those good works that you would save and that you would be glorified. You speak. Your church is listening. We want to honor you with our worship, with our songs, and with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.